are listening to Nightlight. Hello and a very warm welcome to a special gardening edition of Nightlight. With me on the program are Peter and Kathy Gare. Kathy is author of Look and Feel 10 Years Younger in the Next 10 Days. And Peter is a horticulturist and a homestead self-sufficiency consultant. And they're speaking to us from their home in the beautiful Taranaki region of New Zealand. Nightlight's interview of the week. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here with you. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kathy. The topic of gardening, it's a matter of a lifestyle choice. We decided to get into gardening uh, years ago, and we weren't always in a location where we could have a big garden. In fact, we lived in apartments for many years, and our garden was just on the porch in containers. But we still managed to grow fruits, berries, vegetables, and we even had a lemon tree growing in a container, which we still have. Nice. We've had it for years. So, yeah, I think that the interest in gardening has definitely grown, especially over the past few years, where people are becoming more aware of the current world situation, the price of food and the shortages. And we also feel that there's a certain amount of control that you can have when you are growing your own food. Number one, you know where it's come from right. and what you've put into it, the soil it came from no pesticides and herbicides. We were recently researching and we found a lot of studies have been done through the commercial farms throughout the United States, for example, and a lot of them now have what they refer to as dead soils because of the billions of tons of fertilizer that's been poured on these farms over the years. So the soil has actually become dead and the nutrition value in the foods is getting less and less and less, even though they're getting bigger and more colorful and more appealing on the supermarket shelves. They're not as nutritious as they used to I'm be. Sure. So we're all for getting back to backyard gardening. It is fun. We enjoy gardening very much. It's a project that we enjoy doing together. It's something that we do every day because you're constantly having to keep an eye on things. But I wanted to encourage those that don't have a lot of time and or a lot of space or resources that it's something that can be achieved and you can see results in a really short period of time just with a little effort. Right. Peter, I'm sure there's a number of people, myself included, who are thinking, well, growing your own food sounds like a really good idea, especially in the light of galloping inflation, the looming food shortages. But many will be also thinking, for sure, I don't have enough space in my small garden. So firstly, how big a garden do you need in order to be able to grow a sufficient amount of food? Sure. Well, one of the things that I think new gardeners make the mistake of buying too much to prepare for a garden for a start, buying the gear, buying the rototiller or expensive equipment that you really don't need to get started with. You can grow vegetables on your apartment balcony if that's the only space you have in containers. Right. The size of the garden, it really depends on how many people you're catering for. We find just with a small family of, say, two to four people, you can get by with having, for example, four kale plants and four silver beet plants, which continuously grow for up to two, three years. So you have a continuous yield and you can grow things like perpetual spinach in one large 30 centimeter pot and fill it with perpetual spinach seeds and it will flourish constantly. They don't stop growing. So it depends on the variety. It depends what your needs are. Keeping it basic is really key for when you first get started. 
like growing radishes or lettuce, beets, kale, spinach, just to name a few. When you first start, it's a great idea just to have a simple plan and pick four or five vegetables that you want to grow and consider the space that you have. Okay. So to answer your question, again, if you're in an apartment, if you had six large pots to grow vegetables in, that can be done and you can have a pretty decent yield from that amount of space. If you do have a garden plot in your backyard, one meter by four meter garden plot, you'd be surprised what you can get done wow. in there. Again, not overgrowing, just growing what you need. Every new gardener tends to overgrow and you have far too much. You're harvesting and you have piles and piles of stuff in your refrigerator, which some of it ends up in the compost heap because you've grown too much. In our case, we try to give away what we have in excess. Nightlight. What a delight. I read just recently that during World War II, the U.S. government encouraged people to grow what they called victory gardens and to grow their own fruits and veggies. And I believe it was the same in the U.K. And apparently around 20 million Americans planted gardens in their backyards, empty lots, even on city rooftops. And the fruit and vegetables harvested from these victory gardens was estimated to be around 9 to 10 million tons, an amount equal to all the commercial production of fresh vegetables. So the program made a huge difference. So it shows that it really is possible. And you don't have to wait to experience food shortages. If you get to work now and start planting and growing your own garden, Exactly. I mean, during those times of hardship, it was mainly due to the fact that all the farmers, all the husbands were off at right. war. And so people were digging up their backyards. They were digging up parks. They were digging up the nature strips in the streets. Anywhere you could grow vegetables, people were doing it. And it was unbelievable. The productivity level there was incredible, almost feeding half the country with these victory gardens. Wow. We consider our garden a victory garden too. We give the different plots names and they take on their own character and they have different purposes. Like, for example, we have what we call the berry dome. And inside that dome, we have raspberries, boysenberries, blackberries and cranberries cool. in different rows. And the reason why we, we built this dome was because of the birds. We have a lot of birds in our area. And they can devastate your crop. And if you've ever wondered why vineyards and large orchards are covered in nets, well, it's because birds can be incredibly devastating, will eat a lot of your crop, up to 50%, 60% can go to birds if you're not careful. Gosh. So that's what we did. We protect all of our gardens with netting to some degree. And we use a raised garden method where we built beds that are just over a meter tall. So you can just stand and lean slightly to plant or to harvest or to sow seeds. So it's a lot easier on your back. You can keep an eye on the plants because they're basically at eye level. Not that high, but just about when they're, when they're mature. And you can keep a close eye on the pests to make sure you're staying on top of that. In a very small space, you can be very productive. Well, Peter, I'm eager for you to take us around your garden and show us some of the plants there that you're growing and any tips on how to grow our own. Certainly. At the moment, we have broccoli, kale, silver beet, spring onions, red onions. And we have carrots. Beetroot. We have other herbs that we grow, basil, rosemary, oregano, a lot of different herbs in a separate herd guard. That's next to the quail. Quails. Mm -hmm. 
In our area, broccoli will grow all year. You just have to be a little bit more careful in the summer months because they will go to seed really quickly and will be very small, but you can still do it. Like at the moment, we're picking broccoli that are about the size of your head. <laughs> the important part of any garden, the fertility of the soil. And most gardens, when you first start, aren't going to have fertile soil. So you have to amend the soil with compost, fertilizer, sometimes even with a little sand, clay even mixed into your soil is a good mixture together, not just all sandy or not just all loamy compost. You've got to have a biodiversity in your soil to make things work and balance properly in your garden and to keep the earthworms happy, especially. Right. Our garden consists of a lot of vegetable that we've just named, and we also have fruit. We have a passion fruit vine, which is about 15 meters long. And I'll just sidetrack a little bit here. We have three passion fruit vines. They're spaced about two meters apart. And we had those in the ground for about six, seven months, and they just were not doing anything. And this has got to do with communication, I think, because I believe that we can communicate to our plants. Whether they understand English or not, I don't know, <laughs> but I think they connect with the vibe. You gave those passion fruit vines a good talking to. I did. I dug them up. I put them in pots and I lined them up on the deck of the quail coop, gave them a good talking to and said, we don't have time for unproductive vines here in our garden. <laughs> now you three, if you're going to be used and if you're going to do what you're supposed to do, then you're going to have to get a move on. Otherwise, you're going to end up in the compost and you can help fertilize everybody else. Oh dear. And I just left them there for several months during the summer. And I won't say they got abused or neglected because I did keep my eye on them a little bit, but not much. Of course, I kept them watered when it wasn't raining. And then after about three months, I noticed new growth, new tendrils coming out. And then all of a sudden, there was a growth spurt for all of them. So I put them back in the ground, set up the trellises. We have trellises on the, all the way along the back fence and put them in the ground. And within two months... It's now 15 meters long, two meters high. And our first harvest, we didn't count, but it was in the thousands of passion Amazing. Fruit. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think they took your lecture to heart. <laughs> I feel all right when I'm listening to Nightlight. Nightlight. You're tuned in to Nightlight. Well, Peter, I think you sold us on the idea of growing our own fruits and veggies. So... Where do we start? What would be the easiest things to grow first? The simplest of all gardening, believe it or not, can happen in your kitchen. And I wanted to start with that because it may be surprising to some. You can actually farm right in your kitchen and in some cases, even if you don't have much light. And I'm referring to sprouts. Now, sprouting is something that we've done for decades. We've relied on fresh sprouts for our meals for, for many years and continue doing so. And it's such an easy process. You don't necessarily need need some expensive mechanism or a sprouting machine or any expensive materials at all. All you need is a, a glass jar and a piece of cheesecloth and a rubber band and the seeds. And we always look for organic seeds. We grow alfalfa and we also grow mung beans, two of our favorites. And that's what we continuously grow all the time. We're constantly harvesting our mung beans and our alfalfa sprouts. And it's very, very easy to do. You just take your 
seeds, a tablespoon of alfalfa seeds, put that into your two liter jar as an example, and you soak it for 12 hours. After that, you rinse it off and then you rinse it twice a day for three to five days, depending on the weather conditions in your kitchen. And you'll have a full jar of alfalfa sprouts within three to five days. Wow. It's quicker in the summertime, a little bit slower in the wintertime, may take five or six days. But just be sure when you're rinsing that you rinse all the water off, tip that jar upside down and let all the water drip out just so that the seeds and or the baby sprouts in their embryonic state are moist. That's all you need and set it on your kitchen counter or on your kitchen shelf, not in direct sun, but in good lighting. That's all it needs. And the mung beans, same process of soaking as I just described for the alfalfa sprouts, but the mung beans, they will sit on the counter while they're soaking. But after you've rinsed them for the first time, then you need to put them in a cupboard or wrap them in a towel so that they're in the dark because they do grow in the dark. Really? You don't want them to get green because then they're bitter. So to keep them white and to growing properly and quickly, they'll grow for you in three to five days as well. Yeah, so that's gardening in the dark. How easy is that? <laughs> exactly. So to us, that's the simplest form of gardening. And, and we've been doing that for a very long time. And it's very nutritious. There are a lot of health benefits to eating sprouts in that form. So you don't need soil. You just need water and the seeds. And again, it's a great idea to use organic seeds. If you go to your seed supplier or your, your nursery or wherever you're sourcing your seeds from, just make sure they're all organic because if they're not, if they've been sprayed, generally they're sprayed with a retardant to stop them from sprouting, especially in the case of um, the, the mung beans because usually people eat mung beans in, in soups and, and, and meals and cook them like rice. Right. Keeping it really simple is a great idea. You don't have to get complicated or be intimidated about gardening because it is a very easy process. You don't necessarily need to be a rocket scientist to accomplish and to see results in a very short period of time. It's just a, basically a hands-on thing. There's so much material available and I will recommend later on a couple of people that I watch on a regular basis to either learn something new. And that's one thing about gardening too I wanted to mention. The only time as a gardener you think you know everything is in the first 12 months because after that you're constantly learning you're growing in knowledge you're sharing knowledge it's a give and take thing so at the very beginning keep it very simple have a plan know what you're going to grow make sure you've got at least six hours of sun per day or if it's a little less then you may need to stick to leafy vegetables because anything with a root needs full sun six to eight hours a day anything that is leafy can grow in partial shade like lettuce you might get away with kale and, and silver beet and spinach as well. But of course, the more sun you can provide them, the better. By root, you mean like carrots, beets? Carrots, beets, parsnips, and so on. Exactly. And I guess you need some kind of compost or fertilizer? Yes, for the most part, people are going to need to add to supplement the soil because no backyard is going to be, unless it was a garden before you came and and there's lingering composted materials in the soil already, then that would be a great start. But let's say for the most part people don't have that, then you are going to need compost for sure. Right. And compost is a process in itself which will really bring life and vitality to your garden, to your soil, because it introduces worms, it introduces a biodiversity that's continuously breaking down and that conditioning, the particles that the compost creates 
by the time it's finished decomposing, that helps you retain moisture, it feeds bugs, it continues to feed the fungi and all the microorganisms that are present. In fact, in a handful of organic soil, composted soil, the microorganisms in there add up to billions and there are more microorganisms in a handful of composted soil than there are people on the planet. Wow, amazing. So that's how complex the system is. In our case, what we do, we have three bins. And I'll talk about this a little bit more because it's kind of the most important part of your garden to start that first, to start using your food scraps, garden waste, as long as it's not weeds that have gone to seed because you don't want weeds growing in your compost because uh, they will stay there and then they'll sprout later on. So weeds are fine as long as they don't have their seeds. Right. You don't want to put animal scraps like bones or meat or fat or anything like that because that just attracts things that you don't want around your property. And it can also spoil your compost. It spoils the composition that you're looking for. We have a three-bin system. And the first bin is where you have all the green waste. And we try and keep it in, in levels as well. For example, a bunch of leaves and then a bunch of grass and then a bunch of food scraps and then some ash that's left over from the fireplace. Bearing in mind what happens on the forest floor. On the forest floor, you get even layers and it's not dug in. It just stays that way and it keeps decomposing and breaking down. And that's kind of what you're emulating with compost. So that green bin, after three, four months, depending on your climate, that gets upended and turned into the second bin, where the top of that part now is the bottom. Decomposition will continue. It gets quite warm in there. In fact, a compost can get up to 60 degrees Celsius during the summer. It's quite hot when it's breaking down. And you know when you see it steaming in that first bin, you know you're doing the right thing and the processes are working. It's not a, a smelly process. It actually has a sweet smell. It's not a really stinky situation because you haven't got meat or anything like maggots or encouraging that kind of growth. It's more of a, a natural, earthy sort of smell. So it's not displeasing. Yeah, it smells like the woods. It smells like the woods, exactly. And then the third bin, of course, is the second bin that is turned upside down once again. And that whole process from bin number one to bin number three can take up to six to nine months. But again, depending on your climate, it can be quicker. Uh, for us, it takes about that long. And then you end up with a cubic meter of beautifully rich compost to spread on your garden, which is spread out about three to five centimeters thick in your pots or on your garden beds. Can you buy compost? I mean, if you wanted to get started gardening right away, you obviously don't want to wait nine months until your compost is ready. Also, is there a difference between compost and fertilizer? If you have a rich soil like we do here in Uganda, do you need fertilizer? Exactly. And for the most part, I imagine there are a lot of people who want to be gardeners and want to get this process started. So you can buy it for sure. You may not want to have to wait for nine months before you start gardening. When we first started in this particular property anyway, we were buying compost. We we're buying fertilizer like sheep pellets and horse manure to augment the soil that was here. As I'm sure you and our listeners have found out, I know absolutely nothing about gardening. So forgive me if I ask, is there a difference between compost and fertilizer? The difference between compost and fertilizer is, okay, compost is made up of grass, leaves, 
garden waste, food scraps, as long as it's not a protein like bones or feathers or eggs, etc. You don't want any meat in there. So it's really more of a soil conditioner than anything. And it contains the microorganisms to create that biodiversity we were talking about earlier. So it's not necessarily a fertilizer, no. Fertilizer, you have to add to your compost afterwards. Like when you're setting up a garden bed, you start with the soil and you're amending it with compost, right? So you're layering that with compost and then you would distribute some already rotted, dry fertilizer such as horse manure. We use sheep and chicken pellets a lot because it's a, a cheap product here and it's made in these little dry pellets. But the manure should not be fresh because it could burn the plants. Fresh manure will burn your plants and kill them, yes. Yeah, so it has to be dry. So the difference is that fertilizer provides nitrogen to the plants and your compost provides the, the microbiology to retain moisture and to aid the fertilizer, to house the fertilizer, so to speak. It's a marriage between the three, the soil, your potting mix, that is, and your compost and your fertilizer. You need all three. I'm reading that Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of fertilizer and that there's going to be a huge shortage of fertilizer. So if you don't have fertilizer, can you still grow your garden? Yes, because you could source it in other ways. Like I think most of the billions of tons of fertilizer that comes out of that country are chemical fertilizers like superphosphate, for example, that the farmers use, industrial farming uses. So oh, okay. as a backyard gardener, you wouldn't have to worry about those sorts of shortages because you don't want to use that kind of fertilizer. You want to use like chicken manure or cow manure, whatever manure you've got access to, as long as it's been dried. As right. mentioned, the wet manure will burn the plants. Nightlight. It's always bright when listening to Nightlight. Nightlight. You're listening to Nightlight. Okay, so once you've got your garden beds and you've got your nice soil and you're all set up and you're ready to move on from sprouts and those things that you can grow in your kitchen, what do you suggest is the next step? What would you recommend growing in these garden beds. The easiest way to start when you've prepared your beds or your pots, whatever medium you've chosen or whatever medium suits your situation, then the next step is going to be the seeds or seedlings. And you have to decide whether you want to grow from seeds or you can avail yourself from seedlings that are grown, often sold in markets and at the nurseries, plant supplies, hardware stores here in New Zealand. They have huge nurseries with vegetables that are quite cheap to buy in that form and someone's already sprouted them and they're already off to a good start for a beginning garden it's kind of a good idea to go that route right that doesn't mean you can't start from seed certainly you can and it's very easy to do so so once you've got those pots and those beds prepared then you choose what seasonal vegetable you want to grow as long as it's the right time of year and you're either putting in your seedlings at the right spacing facing them correctly is is critical too because you want to allow for growth. You don't want the roots to intertwine too much. So the depth of planting and the spacing is important. And usually that information is posted on the plants when you buy them, on the seedlings when you buy them. And even the seeds, if you're growing from seeds, it usually tells you there. The instructions on the seed packets will tell you how deep and how far apart to plant. 
For example, we grow carrots and we sow them by seed because you don't want to buy carrots from the nursery. This is an exception to what I just said because if you buy carrots from the nursery and then you plant them in your garden or your, your pots, your containers, they'll never grow a straight root. They'll split into three or they'll twist because they don't like to be transplanted. That's why carrots are best sown directly into the soil directly into the ground. Radishes are the same. Just sow them directly into your garden. Interesting. And what about potatoes and sweet potatoes? I've heard that it's very easy to grow sweet potatoes and get them to sprout roots from which you can grow many more sweet potatoes. Have you had any experience with potatoes or sweet potatoes? Yes. In fact, as we speak, we're growing sweet potatoes. We had them for dinner last night. Oh, really? Sweet potatoes are quite easy to grow. When you first start out, as you say, from one sweet potato, you can end up with, with many. This is the process I use. I cut them in half and I put toothpicks in four sides of the, of the sweet potato. And then I set it on top of a plastic cup of water with a little bit of the potato sticking in the water. And then that grows the sweet potato. And those little growths that come off the sweet potato, they develop roots and that goes down into the water. And then from those roots, the plant is using the potato as the host and feeding off it and growing. And then it takes about six weeks, sometimes longer, 10 weeks. It depends on the weather. When you've got a plant that you can break off from that host potato, then you've got the leaves and the roots and you can use that to put it into the ground. We grow our sweet potatoes in large containers Amazing. so that we can control them. Otherwise, if you put them in a garden bed, it requires a lot of space and it will just take over your garden like a weed. And we don't necessarily want that so we control grow them in containers and each container is quite large 500 millimeters wide and quite deep 600 millimeters deep and we fill it with a very loose soil they like a loose and fertile soil and you can lay the roots down and just have the leaves sticking out the top and the roots are laying down not planted straight down but laying down and you just cover the roots and then the potatoes grow from there it's quite a simple process and once you've got it in the ground or in your containers you don't have to do very much except keep them watered they don't like to get too dry so if you're not getting rain you'll need to water them but it's a fun project growing sweet potato it's it's very popular here in new zealand as well kumara they call it here a very simple crop we grow it all the time and other potatoes as well uh, grow in a similar fashion you can get what's called seed potatoes or Sometimes even from the supermarket or outdoor markets, you'll buy potatoes that'll have little growths off them. That'll be your seed potato. So you let that sit in a cool, dark space for up to, again, it depends on your climate, your temperature, can take up to two months. And those chits, they're called, will grow off the potatoes. And each one of those will end up being a plant as well. Once the potato has grown, usually about three or four chits, you don't want too many on it, three or four or you can plant that in your container or your garden bed. Again, we keep ours contained. We don't want them to take up too much space. And they grow well in containers. It's easier to harvest because you can just tip it up into a wheelbarrow or onto a tarpaulin, spread out the soil, harvest your potatoes, and then put the soil back in and start all over again. The other day I made sweet potato muffins, and today I made a sweet potato cake. All right. Yes, it's wonderful. <laughs> Sounds delicious. 
Tell us about tomatoes. I mean, almost every meal includes tomatoes in one form or the other. What's your experience in growing tomatoes? Sure. We grow tomatoes every year and enjoy doing so. We prefer the smaller cherry tomatoes. So that's something we've grown more accustomed to eating in salads. It's kind of easier. You can just throw the whole thing into the salad and mix it in. Right. Growing tomatoes is also an easy process. You need to provide them with full sun and a decent amount of water. They like a rich soil. Keeping your tomatoes upright on a good stake system. There's all kinds of different ways of staking them up and all of them seem to work you can have a like a trellis or tripod type stake i like to use a string method where you wrap the main stem around a string and it goes up to a pole and you can keep tightening that pole as the plant gets bigger and bigger or you can also build a trellis around the tomato if it's in a container which we've done mm. for several years in a row put a trellis around the container itself and so you don't have to support it the tomato will just grow through the trellis as it gets taller and taller and it keeps the birds off and it's an easy way to harvest. Tomatoes are a very easy crop to grow, but they do require sunshine. You can't grow it in the winter months unless it's indoors in a, a greenhouse with heat, but that's kind of cost prohibitive. But if you're in a country that gets warm temperatures all year, you should be able to grow tomatoes all year long. How about veggies like peas and string beans and those kind of vegetables? Absolutely. They're among the easiest to grow as well. We grow snow peas often and beans of all kinds of description and very, very simple to grow. Don't take up a whole lot of space. They love the sunshine as well. So if you can provide a good rich soil or a good rich soil in your container, they will perform for you. Absolutely quick and easy to grow. Wow, you guys have just so much food. Anything I mentioned, you've got it growing in your garden. And thank you for sharing with us these photos. It really helps to give us the vision of what our own gardens could be and the amount of food that can be grown. Shining Love's Light. You're listening to Nightlight. In this show, I also want to ask you about your experience in raising quails. But first, anything more about gardening? Watering, for instance, how often do you need to water your garden? Sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, sun, good soil, good maintenance, and water are a big part of the success of your garden. As far as how much to water, it depends on your climate. As long as the soil is staying moist, if you can push your finger in up to your knuckle and still feel moisture, then there's no need to water. If you're in a hot climate or if it's summertime, generally I would water every day, especially in raised beds, which we use. The soil tends to dry out because it goes down through the different strata of the buildup of the bed and it does tend to dry out because it's exposed more to the wind and the sun. But if you've got a lower garden bed, which has been mulched, I'll bring that into the conversation now too, because Mulching is a term used for covering the entire garden bed with straw, seedless straw that is, like pea straw. We'd sometimes have to do some pruning from time to time. So we mulch through a, a machine that grinds up the branches into very small pellet-like size. And we spread that out over the garden. When you water, that helps retain the moisture, much like what the compost is doing. Mulch also protects the compost from drying out. And you might find that you can go three or four days, even in the summer, without watering. And it depends on your watering system. There are drip irrigation systems, or if you're just watering with your hose and a nozzle, 
or a watering can. It can really depend on how you're going about it. But mulch will save your water bill or protect your garden from drying out. And it's a benefit to the environment because you're not having to water all the time. And plus, take up time watering. It does take time and effort. But it's also a good time to check out the plants. And one of the best pest control methods we use is the hose and the nozzle. You set the nozzle to a spray that is not going to be too damaging to the plant. Aphids basically are your worst enemy. They're usually underneath the leaves, so you don't always see them. But as you're watering, if you inspect your plants and make sure there are no aphids, they multiply by the hundreds and thousands if you don't get on top of it. And they can destroy your crop. And if you go to harvest, and they're covered in aphids, it's not a very pleasant experience. But if you're regularly watering by hand, which I prefer to do, I do have watering systems, but I do water by hand a lot because I find it an inspiring thing to do. And it's a time where I get ideas and good thoughts and feel positive and happy and enjoying the garden. But you can use the pressure on the hose to wash off those aphids rather than using pesticides. And we find a, a really effective way of getting rid of them. And it sounds like, oh, well, you're just washing them off and they're on the soil or on the garden and they're going to get all over everything else. But aphids tend to drown really easily. So that method, if you do it for two, three days in a row, it generally gets rid of them and then away you go. Organic garden is really our thing and we don't use any pesticides or herbicides or any poisons whatsoever because it's not necessary. Healthy soil, healthy plant. If your plants aren't healthy, then they're the ones that bugs tend to attack and that's where your problems really start. So if you, if you have a healthy garden, if you have a well-watered garden, well-composted garden, with mulch on top, then the plants won't get attacked by bugs. Good to know. Watering just in general, again, the weather, your climate has a lot to do with it and the conditions. If you've provided mulch, then you're going to have to do it a lot less than you normally would. Very helpful. Good to know. Drainage is very, very important. You don't want your plants sitting in water. There's a term in gardening that gardeners use is plants don't like wet feet. So you've got to allow for good drainage whether that's in container gardening or in a garden bed. You don't want to see water sitting in puddles. If it is sitting in puddles, then you know you've got a drainage problem and something you'll need to address either to mound your garden bed so that the water runs off in a rain or when you're watering. That's really key. Well, unless you're a vegetarian, it would be nice to have some sort of protein or meat to go along with the fruits and vegetables. You've chosen to raise quails. Why quails? Raising quail was something that we had talked about and we finally got to the point where we thought, well, let's just do it and get started on it and research it as much as possible. They're very dependent on you, so you have to know exactly what you're doing. We have our egg layers and we have our meat birds, which provide us with our protein. We don't buy eggs. We survive on mm. quail eggs in abundance. Well, I once had a couple of fried quail eggs sunny side up and they were very cute, like little doll's eggs. But how many quail's eggs do you need in order to have a decent meal? One chicken egg, for example, is equal to about three or four quail eggs, depending on the, the size. They do vary in size a little bit from bird to bird, but three or four quail eggs is equal to one chicken egg. So not rich in flavor so much. They just taste like a chicken egg, as you've probably experienced when you ate yours. There's really no difference in the flavor, maybe slightly in the texture. They're so rich in nutrition as compared to chicken eggs. So if you eat too many of them, that's what we discovered. You realize Ooh, I feel really heavy. That was a bit too much. I mean, we get 70 eggs a week, so Whoa. that's a lot of eggs. 
Do they lay one egg a day like chickens? No, they do lay once a day, but at the moment we've got three or four hens, which isn't unusual. We've got three or four hens that lay twice a day. Yes, but generally right, it's right. just once a day. And of course you also eat them for meat. It's delicious. It's easy to process. It's a bit of a chore. Of course, nobody wants to take the life of an animal, but um, once you get used to it and you get the process down, it's just part of farming. Right. Well, did you start with the mummy and daddy quail and then they multiplied or did you just buy a bunch at the same time? We bought an incubator and we bought the fertile eggs. So we incubated them. And how many quails do you have? At the moment we have 14. There are 10 females, 2 males and 2 meat birds. And what do people need to start raising quails? And what kind of care do they need and well, how easy is it? The thing about quail is that they are happy in confined spaces. Like even though we have a fairly large coop, we also built a run for them outside. They run down this ramp and then they have an area outside where they run around freely. Uh, but it is enclosed because quail are a small bird and it just take a moment for a cat to take one out or even a, a bird of prey which we sometimes have flying overhead. So they're aware that they're a prey animal and they feel much safer in confined spaces. So it doesn't require a very big cage to make them happy. Right. Quails, they don't necessarily fly. They do what's called popping. They'll just levitate like a helicopter and go straight up if they're startled. If your cage is too low, then the impact mm. of them hitting the roof can break their necks. So you need to provide mm. them with either a two meter space or about a foot space so that when they mm. pop they'll just bounce back off the wire and back onto the ground and won't hurt themselves so you can raise them in very small cages and they're quite happy they just like mm. huddling together and laying their egg and access to food and water and that's all they want because in the wild mm. they live in really small areas as well of course they roam around freely but they're mm. happy just to be under one little bush and a very small confined space because that's where they feel mm. protected and not in any danger. And why did we decide to raise quail over chickens? Good question. Or turkeys. <laughs> exactly. Well, both of the above, we've raised chickens in the past and they're a great source of protein as well for both eggs and meat, but they're very, very messy and they can be quite mm. destructive in the garden. And with our quail, for example, we give them what we call garden tours, pick them all up, put them in a carry cage and put them in the garden and it has a netting over the top of it and they forage around. They don't disturb or hurt anything. They don't damage anything. They might pick at a couple of lettuce leaves and that's fine. They love that but they don't damage any of the plants yet they cultivate a little they eat bugs and caterpillars they're kind of a non-invasive type bird to have in your garden they're also quieter right and they're very very quiet they don't make a lot of noise you have to be fairly close to even hear it in a suburban environment you can grow quail without disturbing the neighbors for example even if you have a rooster because they're not loud like a chicken a rooster of the chicken family is very very loud very annoying The quail reach maturity by eight weeks, whereas a chicken takes several months. 
Very interesting. One of our goals is to, yes, we're on a drive to subsist with our solar power and our vegetable and fruit growing and raising quail and we're soon to get into bees. I've had bees before in the past, so I know the whole process. So we're going to set up beehives. We also want to set up a wind turbine system, which will also complement the solar. Whenever there's no sun or the battery runs out at night, the wind power is always there as well. So we're working on all these things with a balance and a synergy. But we also wanted to mention how we managed to do all this financially, because I think that's kind of a big part of it for us. If we were having to worry about where the money was coming from, either have to generate that in the form of a job or providing services and so on. But in our case, we've learned over the years how to create passive income. And I'm sure a lot of people out there may be interested in, in how we do that, because it is money that's earned while we're asleep or while we're gardening. So if anyone's interested and wanted to know how we are going about that, then we can leave a link below this video and they can contact us on our Facebook page. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. Gardening was really the first job and to garden was the first commandment ever. God gave Adam the commandment or the rule or the guideline to tend and keep the garden. And in looking up what those words mean in Hebrew, tend in Hebrew, abad, meaning to work or to serve, and to keep in Hebrew, the word shamar, meaning to exercise great care over. So God told Adam to work or to serve and to exercise great care over the garden. So we thought that was a, an inspiring thought to incorporate in our passion for gardening. It is a job in a way, and you do feel connected to it as well. And you do feel like you're serving something out there in the garden and perhaps another topic entirely. But I believe we talked about it a little bit before when we were talking about grounding and earthing. When you're in the garden, we really experience that a lot. And you feel that peace and that tranquility and that coherence. And through some research, you know, scientists are actually able to measure, for example, the Earth's gravitational energy field, the magnetic field of the Earth, is measured at 0.1 hertz. And the human who is earthing and grounded and in a coherent state, you know, a loving state or a caring state, a prayerful spiritual state, a compassionate state, for example, that can be measured from your heart energy from a meter away out of your body with a magnetometer. And that measures 0.1 hertz. And it's the same with large trees, their energy, these scientists have discovered a magnetic force of 0.1 hertz. So there's something going on there that we feel is part of connecting to the earth, connecting to the Lord, that earthing and that connection with that frequency that brings it all together in the cycle of life. I hope that's making some sort of sense. It's a fascinating science where they're now measuring your heart energy. The science also proves that your heart actually has a brain. There are 40,000 neurons in your heart and your heart sends more energy to your brain than your brain does to your heart. The emotions that we feel, that's what rules our life, our heart, right? Our passions, our feelings all come from that heart energy. I just wanted to make that connection with gardening because it's quite a sensation to know that there's actually something magnetic going on there, connecting us to getting back to the garden, so to speak, and and connecting with, with people, connecting with plants and trees. There's that same frequency going on. And that's why God told Adam to tend and keep the garden. In other words, he was saying, get connected and stay connected. 
In closing with gardening, there's this beautiful quote that says, it's a beautiful thing, the silence of things growing. And that, that really means a lot to me. It's sort of uh, gardening adds years to your life and life to your years. There's something about it that's more than just food. It's that experience that you can have with it as well. That experience of that connection and the reward of the results of the harvest. No wonder there was always parties and, and joy and festivals around time of the harvest. It's a joyous event. And thank you so much, Peter and Kathy Gare, for giving us more than enough information and motivation to start our own victory gardens. Please do check out Peter and Kathy's Facebook page. And if you haven't heard Kathy's nightlight show titled Health and Wellbeing Insights, then you'll find it on the Nightlight playlist on this channel. But that's it for now. We'll be back again very soon with another Nightlight podcast. Bye for now. Bye.